Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Revelation, the second chapter specifically of the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. And so a couple weeks ago, we began this study. We looked at um, how Jesus in the book of Revelation reveals himself to us and how we are able to um, see him and behold him and to know him through the revelation. Talked about how Revelation is a mysterious book, oftentimes, um, one that many look at and say this is difficult to understand and to interpret, and in many ways, rightfully so. Um, but as we jump into this, last week we studied about a church in a city called Ephesus. And today we are going to continue to move along this route that John recorded these letters of Jesus two churches on. And so these churches are all kind of located along this route. And so um, last week we were in Ephesus, one of the major cities, in fact, the largest city in the region. And today we're going to look at kind of its sister city, Smyrna. Smyrna. Now, Smyrna is um, kind of a a funny name to me when I read through the churches um, that Jesus is speaking to. I see Smyrna, and for whatever reason, that's kind of like tickles me. Um, I get a little, I'm easily amused, okay? Um, Some of you already know this. But even as there's an amusing name here in Smyrna, there's some serious suffering taking place. This city of Smyrna is only mentioned um, as a city. It's only mentioned in one book of the Bible, Revelation. And it's only mentioned in chapters 1 and 2. These are the only places in the New Testament that you will find the city of Smyrna mentioned. But the word Smyrna actually pops up three more times in the New Testament. All right, I'm going to we'll play a little game. How's that sound for you? Some of you Bible scholars. Um, it's found three other times. The first time it's found in Matthew chapter number two, um, verse number 11 specifically. This is immediately after Jesus, not immediately after, excuse me, immediately after in the book, but a couple years after Jesus' birth. um, Wise men come from the east to worship Jesus. And as they do so, they come into um, Bethlehem where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are, and they bring him gold, frankincense, and Smyrna. They bring him Smyrna. (laughs) That's the Greek word. Um, In English, we use that right there. We use that word as myrrh. Myrrh. But in the Greek, it's identical to the name of the city, Smyrna. We see it again in Mark chapter number 15. As Jesus is on the cross, um, he is hanging there, and he says, I thirst. And the, the soldiers nearby, they take a sponge, and they fill it with, it's actually used here in a little bit different way. It's a Smyrna wine. It's wine mixed with this myrrh, this bitter, um, this bitter substance. Um, myrrh is one of those things that smells sweet. Think of it like a, a soapy kind of a thing. It smells sweet, but it doesn't taste very great. And so it's bitterness here as it's offered to Jesus in Mark 15. It's mentioned one more time, John chapter 19. There's a man named Nicodemus. We meet him first in John chapter number three. He comes to Jesus at night. He's a leader of the people. He is a Pharisee, a religious teacher. And then what we see in John chapter number 19 is the same man, Nicodemus. After Jesus was crucified, he goes and he prepares Jesus for burial with Smyrna. Myrrh. This city has that same name, and many believe that Smyrna was a significant exporter of this spice, most commonly used in the burial process, although it had some other medicinal benefits that people would use it for. 
And so the city of Smyrna, as we're going to see, uh, the city of Smyrna is actually very appropriately named. It has a lot in common with myrrh. And so as Jesus begins to speak to these individuals at Smyrna, he's doing so even with this picture in mind. Today, um, the city is known as Izmir. I think we have a map of the area. And um, I showed this map on Wednesday night, and um, I was without a laser pointer. So I want to thank the person who um, got me a little gift. I have a new toy, guys dangerous here, right? Um, okay, so this map is actually super cool. I came across this map. If you'd like a, a copy of this, I'd love to give it to you. This map, each of those red dots that you see are recorded first century churches. These are places that we know there were churches in the first century. So I think that's fascinating as a church history nerd myself, okay? Smyrna is going to be right here, okay? So that's the city of Smyrna. Ephesus is Ready for this? Boom, right there. About 35 miles, okay? So my trembling is actually going from Ephesus to Smyrna right there on that image. And so this is a sister city to Ephesus. Not quite as large as Ephesus, but still a large city, still a port city, still a city that is right there where there's a lot of buying and selling of goods. In fact, Smyrna is located directly, almost directly across from Athens, which is just a little bit further north of those red dots there on, uh, in Greece. And so in this um, city, modern day, it's known as Izmir, Izmir, which is the Turkish word for, anyone ready for it? Anyone want to guess? Myrrh. So even today, it's still known by that export. This city was established about a thousand years before Jesus was born. Many believe it to be the birthplace of a man named Homer. Um, Homer, uh, not the cartoon character, Homer the poet. Maybe you've heard of the Iliad or the Odyssey, these great um, Greek tales of myth. It's believed that the author of those was from Smyrna. And this city rose to prominence about 700 years before Jesus, but then it was destroyed about 200 years later. The city was left in ruin. And in fact, today, even within Izmir, there are two ancient sites of Smyrna, Old Smyrna and New Smyrna, which is the Smyrna that is being spoken to here. The amazing thing about this city is the beauty of the area that it exists within. As Alexander the Great began to travel and began his conquest as the leader of the uh, Greek, the Hellenistic Empire, Alexander came across Smyrna, and he said, this place is so beautiful, we must rebuild it. And so some of Alexander's men began the process of rebuilding and restoring Smyrna. So much so that by the time that Jesus is speaking to this church, Smyrna is known as the crown of Asia. The crown of Asia. This city um, exists mostly on the uh, lowlands near the coast with mountains that rise up around it, almost resembling this natural crown around the city. And this city was known as the city that had been dead, but was now alive and prospering again. And so in the middle of all of this that's going on among the turmoil and the persecutions of the Christians, the city of Smyrna was one that the people took pride in. They said, we are from Smyrna, the city that was dead and is now rebuilt. 
The city that was in ashes, but is now prospering greater than ever, almost rivaling Ephesus as the center of trade in Asia Minor. And so we have this city who has a lot of pride within themselves. But this church in Smyrna is in a very different position, as we're about to see in just a moment. The Bible tells us in Revelation 2, verse number 8, Jesus here is speaking. He says, to the angel, the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. In each of these letters, these two that we've looked at, that we're looking at so far, and then the other five that we'll look at in the weeks to come, we want to see who is Jesus in these verses. Who is Jesus? Who is he revealing himself to be? And he begins this by saying, I am the first, I am the last. I died and came to life. And so what is he trying to communicate? First of all, he's saying this. He's saying, I'm the, he's going back to chapter number one. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. There is nothing before me and there will be nothing after me. I am the bookends. I am on both sides. I am all of it before everything and after everything. But notice that's not the entirety of how he describes himself. He also describes himself as the one who died and came to life. He died and came to life. We pictured that through baptism this morning, the death and the burial of Jesus, and that raising again to new life, even as Jesus wants to do within our lives through our salvation, understanding that we are dead in sin and that we can be raised through faith in him. But even as we examine who Jesus is, I want you to understand this with me. Jesus embodies in this passage, he embodies both sovereignty and suffering. He embodies both sovereignty and suffering. He's the first and the last. He's before everything and he's after everything. A to Z, he's all of it, everything in between. That's his sovereignty. It means this simply, he is in control. Jesus is in control. There's nothing that takes place that is outside of his purview or his authority. Now, you would think if you or I um, had this sovereignty, if we knew everything and were able to understand everything, and that was our ability, let me ask you this. Would there be suffering? If you had complete control and you could do as you please, would there be suffering? Probably not, right? When we see someone near us that is hurting, we go around and we say, man, I wish there were something I could do. How many of you have uttered those words? We want to relieve that pain and relieve that suffering. But Jesus is sovereign and suffered. Process that with me for a minute. He is in control, and yet he's the one who died and then rose again. We do see this. Suffering is not the end of his story, is it? He's not still in the grave. We don't look at a Savior who was crucified and remained there. But he says there is something that is coming after. And he's setting the stage for actually how he's going to end this letter to the Smyrna church. So then we see who is Jesus? Who is he representing himself as within this passage? Now let's examine just two verses. What is he saying to this church? 
Look at verse number nine. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You know what's fascinating to me as we, as we look at this? Uh, follow me, if you will. Um, Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse number 2. Okay, he's writing to the church of Ephesus. Watch what he says. I know your, what is that word? Works. Um, the church in Pergamum we'll look at next week. And um, we're going to skip that one because we see that he actually does a little bit different there as well. Jump to the church of Thyatira. This is verse number 19. I know your works. Chapter 3, um, verse number 1. It's kind of the middle of the verse. He says to the church in Sardis, I know your works. Chapter 3, verse number 8, I know your, your works in Philadelphia. To Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 15, I know your works. So to five of these seven churches, he says what? I know your works. Watch what he does here to the church in Smyrna, verse number 9. He says, I know your Tribulation. I know your tribulation. You know what he doesn't say anything to the church in Smyrna about? Their works. Remember last week how we talked about the church of Ephesus, and I tried to drive this point home with you. Um, we talked about the church of Ephesus and how Jesus cares more um, about your heart than your hands right? About how we ought to walk with God before we begin to think about how we work for God. There's a priority between these things. Now, as we look at this verse, we look at verse number nine, Jesus says, he look at the church in Smyrna and say, I know your works. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. Here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus knew what this church was going through and Jesus knows what you are going through. You follow me? Jesus knows what you are going through. In a room like this this morning, um, there is not another person in this room that knows everything that you are walking through, right? Fair? Someone may know some of the details. Um, you may have shared it with a friend or a family member. They might know some of it, but no one knows everything that you are walking through. But Jesus... And as Jesus looks at this church in Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation. This word tribulation is actually a really, really interesting word. Um, English, we borrow this from Latin. And in Latin specifically, um, this word, and it's actually similar to the Greek word that is used here as well. Here's what that word tribulation means. It means a crushing, a crushing. Anyone ever feel like um, the struggles of life are crushing? Ever feel, ever go to bed and just feel like there's this weight on your chest that you can't shake? Ever feel like when you get up in the morning, it's as if you're just carrying around a hundred pound vest and you just, you don't know or understand all that's going on. Maybe there's a season of life that you walk through and you're like, this is just, how do we say it? Heavy, heavy. That's what this church is enduring. And in fact, um, this word tribulation, specifically, it was a reminder of these uh, wheels, these heavy wheels, these rollers that would be used to crush grain so that it could eventually be useful. And so they would take the grain and they would crush it. It would go through the process of tribulation 
so that the grain, that wheat, was able to be used in the baking process. And so this tribulation is what they are enduring. But not only tribulation, but watch this. And your poverty. Your poverty. And I believe this poverty is tied in with the end of this verse. The slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Understand, I want you to understand the context of this church with me. This church in Smyrna, these Christians, um, they are living in an era where Christianity is marginalized. Around the time of this writing, most scholars estimate that there are about 10,000 Christians across the empire of millions. About 10,000 Christians. And they're scattered in all of those different cities that we looked at just a moment ago. And so in Smyrna, it's safe to assume that there might have been a hundred-ish Christians. You might say, well, nay, there's 300 or there's 50 or whatever. Order of magnitude, about a hundred. Okay, give or take. In a city of hundreds of thousands. And there's not multiple churches. There's not multiples that are, no, it is the Gentiles who are worshiping um, Dionysus is the significant God in Smyrna, the God of wine. Um, there are the Jews that are probably making up about five to 10% of Smyrna. So about 10 to 20,000, significantly larger than the Christian population of the city. Well, in this era as you go into the markets, into the trading places, the agora is the Greek term for it. As you go into the agora, you would take incense, and you would take that incense, and you would throw it before the idols of the busts of the emperor. And this is saying, I swear my fealty to, in this era, this is Domitian's reign. But these Christians say, Domitian wants to be worshipped, but I can only worship Jesus. The Jews were given an exception under this. They worship Yahweh, and it's fine as long as they follow the rest of our laws. But now, you know what the Jews are doing in Smyrna? They're saying, those guys aren't with us. They're not with us. And so these Christians can no longer buy, sell, trade with the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And the Jews want nothing to do with them. So who are their customers? Who are their employers? Where are they getting any kind of uh, financial income from? So when Jesus is speaking and he says, you're poor, he means it. You're shut out from the rest of your culture. You're existing on your own. You're dependent on each other for survival and someone else who might take pity on you. Because you're not going out into the Agora and buying and selling and, and making wealth there. And so as we look at this, we see this church that they are poor. And yet, what does Jesus say about them? What does Jesus say about them? Right there in parentheses. But you're rich. Were they wealthy? No. Did they have resources and income? No. And yet Jesus says, you are rich. Why is this church viewed as rich? What does it mean to be rich here in this passage? Well, David wrote something similar in the fourth Psalm. Even as he is writing, he is recording these things. And the fact is, you and I have such a twisted idea of what it means to be rich. 
Because we want, if we want to demonstrate our wealth, what do we do? We pull out our phones and look at our bank accounts. Uh, we open up our computer and we log in and we say, ah, look, there's my investment. Look at the bottom line. See, I am rich. But watch what David writes to the Lord in Psalm 4, verse number 7. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And so in the middle of this city, where literally the God of wine is worshipped. You want to know anything about worship of the God of wine and how that looks? Um, I'll give you a hint. A lot of wine. (laughs) All right? And so David here is writing, and he says, listen, grain and wine, all the food, all the drink that I could ever ask for. I've never been happier than when I am with you, Lord. You know how you're rich? You're rich through Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus, you have everything that you could ever need. You understand that? Your bank account might be empty. You might be eating the leftovers from three days ago. And Listen, that's my lunch probably, right? You might have been peanut butter and jelly all week. And you know what? You got Jesus, you got everything you need. And this church in Smyrna... They didn't, many of them wouldn't have known where their next meal was coming from, except maybe the generosity of others. They were outcasts within their culture. And yet Jesus looks at them and he says, wow, you guys are rich. Why? Because they came to the understanding that wealth was not found in material things. They had given up on the pursuit of this. For them, following Jesus meant they would never be wealthy. You follow me? Following Jesus meant they would never be wealthy. And yet they said, Lord, I will go where you will go. And so Jesus looks at them and says, I know the crushing that you are enduring. I know your poverty. I know the slander of these false Jews. You see, these had been removed from the synagogue. They had the protections to buy and sell had been taken away. But even now, Jesus speaks, and he says, you know what synagogue they're from? The synagogue is a place of teaching within the Jewish traditions. So it's not the temple, the primary place of worship, but it's where Jews would go to learn more about the scripture. He said, you know what, you know what scripture they're reading from? Do you know who they are teaching and who are they, are, they are expounding on? They're the synagogue of Satan. It's not the Lord's teachings that they're upholding. And even as all of these things are taking place in the Smyrna church, watch what he says in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have, there's that word again, tribulation. So Jesus, as he speaks, he says, do not fear. Why does he have to say, don't fear? Well, he has to say, don't fear, because they're about to suffer. Things are about to happen that would cause a human being to be afraid, justifiably so. They're about to endure a time of great suffering. He says, what is this going to entail? He says, some of you, the devil will throw some of you into prison. Isn't that incredible what he says there? I love how he says that. He says, the devil will throw some of you into prison. Was the devil literally like showing up and grabbing them? And no, 
But Satan was using his tools and the way that he gets work done, and he was taking them, and he was uh, arresting them, and he was using these powers of the day, and they would be thrown into prison. Why were they thrown into prison? That you may be tested. That you may be tested. We're going to come back to that in a moment. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Hear this statement, 10 days, it's kind of an idiom um, or a figure of speech of the day. It means this, a little while, a little while. But you know, this persecution in Smyrna um, lasted for decades, decades. In fact, um, the best known pastor of this church in Smyrna was a man by the name of Polycarp, Polycarp. Polycarp was a follower of um, John. He had learned from John the Apostle, been trained and mentored by him. He was friends with other uh, early church pastors, and he was uh, one of, in fact, one of the most significant early believers right after the death of the Apostles. Polycarp would have been about 20 years old as this letter to Smyrna is being written. And Polycarp went on to uh, minister and to serve the Lord for decades more. Polycarp is um, best known probably for a work that was written by some of his followers a few years after his death. The title of this piece, and you can go read it in its entirety, it'll take you 10 minutes. It's called this. The martyrdom of Polycarp. That word martyrdom, that's someone who dies as a result of the things that they believe. So Polycarp, this pastor of the early church, is best known for the way that he died. And you know when he died? Probably not, unless if you're with us Wednesday, you might, because we talked about this on Wednesday a little bit. He died in about the year 155. This letter is being written in about the year 95. 60 years later, persecution in Smyrna is continuing. So how is it that Jesus can say, oh, 10 days, just a little while, you're going to be enduring this suffering and this affliction? How many of you think 60 years, that's just a little time? Anyone? Yeah, just a couple minutes. Like if someone says, oh, yeah, I'll be there soon, and they show up at your house 60 years later, that is not soon. But that's what Jesus is saying to this church. He says, just a little while, you're going to endure the suffering. Just for a little bit of time, you're going to walk through these days, and they're going to be hard, but don't worry. It's just going to be for a little while. What's he talking about? Well, let's remember the words of Jesus. What does he say through Peter? He says, a thousand years as a day. And in fact, Paul writes, and Paul says this, all of the weight, all of the struggle, all of the pain that we endure, it's but a light, momentary affliction. How? How does he say that? Well, in the scope of eternity, it's a drop in the bucket. Because the fact is, is that Jesus here, what, is he, what did he say at the very beginning? How did he introduce himself? He says, I'm the one that was from the beginning. I'm the one that was from the end. You and I, the, the hardships we endure in the middle of the grandeur of God's eternality is so finite. Can I tell you this? Can I make this promise to you? If you are a follower of Jesus, your suffering, your pain, your heartache 
has an expiration date. One day it will be no more. You say, but Nate, man, I've been carrying this for months. I've been carrying this for years. I've been carrying this for decades. I know. But your pain and your heartache and the things that you are walking through today has an end date. And Jesus knows what it is. And so he's able to write to these. He says, do not fear, because it's just going to be a little while. And then what does he say? Because he's not promising some magic thing that's going to overthrow all of this. What does he say? He says, be faithful unto death. So what's the end of this tribulation for them? What's the end of the suffering they're enduring? It's the end of this life. Be faithful unto death. And then what does he promise them? He says, I will give you the crown of life. Remember Smyrna, where Smyrna is located? It's seated in the, the crown of Asia. And in fact, Smyrna had uh, hosted at least one series of Olympic-style games where people would come and they would participate and they would run these races. You know who didn't participate in the Olympics? Christians. And the, Olympi the Olympics, the Olympic athletes would be given a crown, those who finished their race and those who won and competed. They would be given this crown. You know who wore crowns? Kings wore crowns. Emperors, rulers wore crowns. You know who wasn't a ruler? Christians. The Christians had no hope of ever obtaining a crown unless they made it for themselves. You know the one, um, the one person in the scripture in the New Testament that on this earth wore a crown? There's one time that you see a Christian, a believer in the New Testament wearing a physical crown on this earth. You know who it was? It wasn't actually a believer. It was the author and the finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. You know what his crown looked like? Thorns. But Jesus now promises, he says, I'm going to give you a crown I'm going to give you not just any crown, but a crown of life, a crown that's going to last and it's going to continue. And this is a crown that I will give to you. Isn't that incredible? Because crowns were something that would be bestowed by whether it be the emperor or the empire. It would be those who are around these people. But here Jesus says, listen, I'm going to give you a crown. And then he finishes with this. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You see, in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your suffering, I want you to understand very clearly that your pain is not hidden from God. Okay? You follow me? We've been talking about it to this point. Your pain is not hidden from God. As he looks at this church in Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation. That word Smyrna, the name of the city, it's, it's chief export, myrrh. Myrrh is a really interesting um, substance. It's still available today. It's primarily a product of kind of Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean, um, around Turkey, Greece, down into Northern Egypt. Smyrna um, actually begins a sap from um, a specific type of tree. And so what they'll do is like um, we would tap trees for uh, syrup here in our area, our region. They would take and they would tap these trees and they would get this resin um, bled out of these trees. 
then it would go through a process of drying and hardening. And so it's not a liquid form traditionally. What happens is it begins to solidify, make up what almost look like little stones. And then to release the scent of the myrrh, because the myrrh in that shape is not necessarily useful, does anyone want to guess what would actually take place to be able to release the aroma from the myrrh? It would be crushed. They would take these little pieces of myrrh, they would place them in some sort of a bowl or something like that, and they would crush up these pieces to release this aroma. Does it remind you of any of the words that we've seen here in this passage? Maybe the tribulation. You see, there's this sweet smell that is released in the crushing of the myrrh. But there's also a sweet smell that appears before God as his people endure tribulation. See, even as God speaks of our faith, he calls our faith, especially in difficult times, he calls your faith and mine precious. In fact, Psalm 116, verse number 15, the psalmist writes and he says this, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That word precious means this, weighty, significant, substantial. He doesn't overlook it. It doesn't surprise him. It doesn't catch him off guard. In fact, we may even be able to say that our faith is most precious in these difficult times. Psalm 56, verse number 8, this is David writing, and he says this, Lord, you've kept my tears in a bottle. What What does he mean by that? Here's what he means. He means he knows every tear that's ever come out of you. Every time that you have cried or wept, been hurt, he knows it. He sees it. He is familiar with it. There is not a time that you endure that God looks around and says, what happened there? No. When your heart is broken, you know who's present in the middle of it? Jesus is. He's aware. He knows all of these things. Your pain is not hidden from God. Listen, you may be the kind of person you don't want to talk to anyone else about it. You just want to close up and you want to keep it to yourselves. Your pain's not hidden from God. You can't run away from him like Jonah tried to do. He is going to see through that facade and he knows the things that you are enduring. And even as he writes to the church in Smyrna, you know one of the things that's fascinating to me is that as he writes to this church in Smyrna, this is one of two churches that he doesn't give any instructions to. Jesus doesn't tell this church to do anything except to continue to not be afraid, right? There is no action that he tells this church that they need to take. He doesn't say, overcome this suffering and fight back against it. Put an end to your suffering. No. He just says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. These things are going to happen to you. Don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. And as we come into the end of this passage, Jesus gives a promise, as he does with each of these letters, to the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. And so this week we see this church that is being told to overcome suffering, overcome the tribulation, overcome the hardships of life that are surrounding you and crushing you down. What does he say? He says the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
I want you to hear this with me. Your hurt does not define you. Jesus does. Your hurt does not define you. Jesus does. So often, we want to take and we want to be our pain. The things that hurt us, now we allow to become our identity. The way that we describe ourselves, whether it be our unemployment, whether it be our financial hardships, whether it be the loss of a loved one that we cared so much for. And listen, these are heavy things, aren't they? Man, just in the last month, I've talked to multiple people that, hey, I got cancer. Heavy, heavy. Talk to loved ones who say, I'm worried about so-and-so. Heavy, heavy. You look at the economy and it's, oh, I'm supposed to be retiring soon, but now I'm not sure when I'm, heavy, heavy. But you're not your pain. You are not your suffering. You are not your hardships. Yes, God can use those in your life. And yes, he does. But that's not what defines you. You know who does? Jesus does. When Jesus looks at you, he doesn't say, oh, there's that person that blank, something happened to or affected. You know, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know how you are identified throughout scripture in relation to God? You're a child of God. You belong to him. It's not about the things that this life just allows to happen to us, the circumstances that go on and that we endure through. That's not how God looks at us. He doesn't put us in that box. He says, you're my child. You belong to me. But so often we allow those things, they become the the thing in our life. I am this. Why? Because that hurts heavy. And oftentimes it's constantly in front of us. It weighs us down and, and we try to take steps and it just feels like that's all that we can see. But at the end of the day, that's not who you are and that's not who I am. That is not who we are. We are a people that have been saved by the blood of this one who was dead and is alive again. So God calls you his child. The author of Hebrews says that in relation to Jesus, he's your brother. Your better big brother who is going to care for you and love you and walk you through the things that he needs to walk you through. Ephesians calls us heirs together with Christ. And so, you know, when we look at the scriptures, he never defines us in terms of our hardships. He doesn't look at the Smyrna church. We might say, oh, it's the suffering church. That's not Jesus description. That's ours. Jesus says, how does Jesus describe this church? In fact, there's one word that Jesus uses as a descriptor of this church. What is it? Rich. So if Jesus had to describe the Samaritan church, what's the one word he uses? Oh, that's the rich church, which is laughable because these guys are broke. But Jesus says it doesn't matter. That's the rich church. That's the rich church. But you and I, oftentimes, we look at those things and they they hurt. Sometimes life hurts. There's a reason that that word tribulation uh, applies to us. Because there are times of life, it's heavy. It's heavy. It hurts. But it doesn't define us. And it surely, surely isn't meant to break us. Because what does Jesus say? He says, the one who conquers 
the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? What is he talking about here? You see, in life, we have the opportunity to be born twice. All of us, if you're sitting in this room today, you were born. You have a body because you were born. But Jesus, as he speaks to Nicodemus in John chapter number three, he says this really interesting phrase. He says, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, uh, what am I supposed to do? Go back into my mother's womb and, and exit a second time? That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus says, no, you've got to be born of water. This is a physical birth and of the spirit. You must be born again. And we come to understand that this is as one places their faith in Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verse number 16 tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal, everlasting, forever life. Well, what happens to death then? Because, man, I've known a lot of people, they believe in Jesus and they still die. Yeah, there's a physical death, but can I tell you, much more terrifying than a physical death is a spiritual death. Separation from God, condemnation, a place the Bible calls Hades, hell. Uh, and in fact, at the end of this book of Revelation, he says death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. That doesn't sound like, a, that's, not, that's not where we want to go. That's not what we want in our lives. But yet, it's what the scriptures show us. But here, understand this with me. When you're born again, that second death isn't for you. When you place your faith in Jesus, you're saved from that second death. Not because of your goodness, because the fact is, is that we don't have that. You don't, neither do I. Our sin has separated us from God. And we're on the path to this condemnation, but through Jesus, we can be rescued. We can be saved. We can overcome. And so church, I know in this room today, there are many of us who are walking through all kinds of different things. Maybe today you're a, you're a believer in Jesus, but man, life's been hard. Life's been hard. There are circumstances and you're trying to navigate emotions and feelings and just stuff. Life's been heavy. You feel crushed in the middle of where you're at. But the fact is, is that Jesus promises us that suffering, that pain, it's just for a little while. It's, just for, it's for a few days. You do anything for a few days, right? We can continue. We can go forward. Uh, we can trust Jesus. We can seek after him. And he promises us that second death has got no power over you. Maybe you're sitting in this room today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus. You saw those today who followed up that salvation with obedience and baptism. What a wonderful thing. Maybe you're in here today and you say, I need to put my faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Hey, listen, you know better time to do that. Jesus says, you must be born again. So if you've never been born again, Hey, today would be a wonderful day to have that spiritual birthday. 
be made new. And to know that you too can overcome the suffering that we face in this world. Not because you're strong, not because you're powerful, not because you have ability, but through the work of Jesus.